If you would open your Bible to Judges chapter 19. Judges chapter 19. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning and finish out our study of the book of Judges. Going through these last three chapters. This is the 14th time, the 14th sermon from the book of Judges. And all 14 times, I trust and pray that we have profited from our time in the Word of God. All Scripture is breathed out of God, inspired of God, and is profitable for us. But admittedly, much of the profit in the book of Judges has come through difficulty and some confusion. This hasn't been easy for either of us, I don't suppose, in me preaching or in you listening. There are some hard things in this book that we've looked at such as Jephthah and the vow he made and the carrying out of that vow. This morning it doesn't get any easier. In fact, I think it gets a little more difficult. My hope is that we can come away from this 19th chapter and really the end of this book this morning and not disdain what we read, but accept it as being from the Lord, profitable for us, good for us, edifying for us, And in that, we have to see the detail, but also what it is the Lord is getting across to us by presenting this to us in his word. Now, this this very well may be one of the most neglected chapters in all the Bible, certainly as far as public ministry goes. It's just hard to read. This is a chapter even at home. If you're reading this, you blush a bit as you read it to your children, or else you just decide not to read it to them at all. Why does this Levite do the things that he does? Well, Lord willing, we'll gain some understanding. I'm not going to say we'll have it totally figured out or, or that kind of thing, but God helping us, we will make some sense of this. And so to that end, I want us to pause and pray and seek the Lord's help and both me as I speak and you as you hear, that we would not miss in all of these details the great lessons we can learn if we can get past the horror of the event itself. So let's ask the Lord for that. Father, we come to you realizing that you are the author of Scripture. We realize that the Scriptures give an honest account of the happenings of men and that in no way did you gloss over the depravity of this people and their actions. Lord, help us to benefit and profit from this time. We ask it in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Let me remind you of the big picture of Judges before we get involved in this 19th chapter. God had given his people clear Instruction. They came in the form of commandments. Do this and live. Do not do this and die. And that wasn't just to be applied to the individual person. Do this and live as a people living under my grace in the land that I am providing you. And I think that's the way that we should, that we should take even that commandment summarized as one of the ten, honor your father and your mother, 
You will live long on the earth. That's, again, what Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. That's, we apply that individually, but really it's more than that. It's given to the whole people of God. And if we are obedient to these commands, then we will live as the people of God, not extinguished from the face of the earth, but long and prosperous lives. And then we even have the promise of Christ in the New Testament that he will build his church and the power of hell will not prevail against it, primarily because he will not forsake his own. So in the big picture of Judges, God had given Israel clear commandments. The dreadful happenings of the Judges era, and remember, We are before the reign of kings, realizing that even many of those kings are wicked and evil, but there are a few good and godly kings. And so we're in that intervening time between Moses and Joshua and David, all of these judges, Eli and then Saul, the initial king, before we get to the period of David, the godly king, the man after God's own heart. God had spoken clearly, and the people just were disobedient. That's really, if we were to throw the book of Judges into a boiling pot and boil it down, what would come out at the end is the disobedience of a hard-hearted, stiff-necked people who would not obey clear commands of God. And really, if we want to be honest, we could take the society that we are living in, throw it into a boiling pot, and at the end what we have is the result of a hard-hearted, stiff-necked people who will not live according to the dictates of a holy God. And in that sense, we, we borrow words from Solomon, there is nothing new under the sun and not much has changed. Here's the clear command that God gave, summarized in Deuteronomy 12, as Moses gives the law to the people again. It was first given in Exodus. Then just before they enter into the promised land, Moses, in sermon form, gives it to them again. So God gave it, and he gave it again. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 12, beginning in verse 29. Moses reminds the people, When the Lord your God cuts off from you, from before you, the nations which you go in to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, notice verse 30, Take heed to yourself that you were not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? And then I will also do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Very clear, is it not? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. And then even more summary in verse 32. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. Simply put, God is saying, here are my commands, do them, and be blessed. Yet we've read in the book of Judges, three times over, we'll see it again this morning as the very end and summary of this entire book, that the people were doing what was right in their own eyes. 
And let's flip that over just so it can be explained more fully to us. To do what is right in your own eyes is to do that which is not right in the eyes of God. To do right according to our own dictates is to do wrong or to disobey the commands and dictates of the Lord. Sin always has consequence. Sin always has grave consequence. And really what we see in these last chapters of the book of Judges are the judgment of God coming to bear in the form of horrendous consequences upon the people who have disobeyed him. A holy God giving holy commands is no longer in the driver's seat by the time we end the book of Judges. What's driving the cart, so to speak, fleshly lust, carnal desires. And later, Solomon speaks with sobering clarity to this way of life when he says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Two Proverbs, Proverbs 14.12 and 16.25, say the exact same thing. That which seems right to you may very well end in death as it is opposed to God. One more warning from Deuteronomy chapter 8, backing up just a bit from the 12th chapter where I read. The Lord says this, It shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. Again, how much more plain could it be? Going on in verse 20, As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish, because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord If we were to summarize that, in essence, Moses is saying, when Israelites act like Canaanites, they can expect the same fate. When the people of God act like the people of the world or the people of Satan, they should expect the same end as the people of the world. I read this this week as a summary of the book of Judges as a whole, and I think this hits the nail on the head. The entire book portrays a nation rotting at the core. It's rotting from inside out. It's no longer outward forces being pressed upon it. It's the heart of the people of God rotting and all of that profuseness, grotesqueness is coming out. We've reached the bottom of the well of the depravity of the people of God's heart in Judges 19, 20, and 21. How will all of this come to an end? That's the question we're all asking, I suppose. And it would make sense. It would make sense by the end of chapter 21 that we would say that it's right if the Lord just cleaned the slate again and started over. After all, he had done that before. What keeps him from doing it again? His promise that he wouldn't. That's the only thing. It's not the request for mercy, not the cries for mercy that keep him from exacting 
a swift punishment. It can only be attributed to his being full of grace and mercy. And not willing that this people perish. So let's look at chapter 19. Chapter 19 contains for us the account of a Levite and his concubine. Notice that it's introduced with these words. It came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. We could make the assumption when there is no king, anything goes. When there is no king, all is permissible. This little detail is given several times in these later chapters, which I think points to the fact that the writer of the book of Judges was looking forward, looking forward to a true and godly king. This reiterates the fact to us that man was made to be governed by God through Christ and by extension his agents on earth. That is the way God governs us. As being members of his church, the redeemed of God, we are under the immediate authority and headship of Christ concerning all things to his church. But then as citizens of the state, we are governed by his agents what Paul calls in Romans 13.1, governing authorities. And he says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. We were made to be people under authority. That's pressed upon us in every portion of the Word of God. Old Covenant, New Covenant, Epistles of Paul, Peter, whatever it may be, the book of Psalms. We are taught that we are a people to be under authority, especially the authority of God through the person of, Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so back to this first verse. When there is no king, anything goes or is permissible. And we need to see that this is especially true in the heart of man. This is true in your heart. If the Lord Jesus Christ is not ruling and reigning and subduing your heart by grace, then the desperate, wicked nature of this old heart, this old man, which must be put off, shows itself. And acts according to its nature. Do we need any further proof of that than what we can see in the current day's news? Those who are decrying the end of full and free access of infant murder. Living out their own depravity. Crying out for the shedding of blood, innocent blood. And wanting free acquittal for doing so. Vehement in their cries. And it all accounts to nothing more than shaking the hand and fist in the face of a holy God. Saying, we will not have you rule over us. This is what happens when the heart of man is not under 
authority. It works its way out. And when God removes the restraint even of common grace, which he does here in chapters 19, 20, and 21, you'll notice that common grace is given to all men. Peculiar grace is given to the redeemed of God. Common grace is the restraining of a culture. And when that common grace is removed, hell on earth is the result. And that's what we find in this 19th chapter. This is summarized perfectly by one of the commentaries I've been reading when, when the author says, ethically, this story is about unrestrained animal lust and human depravity. This is what it looks like when God turns over a culture. We read that in Romans 1. We've referenced that before, but we aren't given the graphic detail. Oh, we're told what would happen when God gives over a culture when the, when the truth of God is exchanged for the lie, we're told how that will play itself out in some way, but we're spared there by Paul of, of such gruesome detail as we're given here by the author of Judges. So let's look at some of the details. And again, it's not my desire to look at all of them publicly. Go and read these on your own, but I want to look at enough so that we can honor the word of God, and what he has made known to us. The events of chapter 19 begin here in verse 2 with this Levite. Notice he is from the remote mountains of Ephraim. That's important. It's going to come up later where he is from. Interestingly, if you fast forward through the book of Ruth and you get into 1 Samuel, we pick right back up here in the mountains of Ephraim. With Eli. So this is a significant detail. This Levite of the priestly tribe, he takes for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but his concubine was unfaithful. She played the harlot and went away from him. She went back home. So after some time, four months, her husband arises and goes after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. So he goes after her. And he gets to her father's house. And you can read all of these details, but this is what I'm calling extreme hospitality. By the end of it, we're, we're throwing up our hands and saying, enough already. Because this plays out over and over. He goes to get his wife. The father says, refresh your heart, eat, drink, stay the night. That happens over and over and over and over again. Finally, until the Levite has enough and he leaves at evening. It's the wrong time to be leaving. He's supposed to leave early in the morning. Not only can you get more traveling done, but gives you time to get to a place of safety. You don't have to travel at night. So by the time he leaves his father-in-law's house, notice verse 10. The man was not willing to spend the night again, so he arose and departed and came, to, came opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. Notice this is before David. This is before it's the godly city of the king. This is a pagan city. And this Levite was not content to stay there. 
Would have been better for him had he. But we can only say that with perfect 2020 vision, looking backwards, right? They were near Jabus, and the day was far spent. And the servant said to the master, Come, please let us turn aside into this city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. Now, why did this Levite not want to do that? He was afraid. He knew this to be a pagan city. He he thought some evil might befall them. He wants to travel on a little further and take refuge for the night in the city of his own people, where he supposes that he will be safe, and all who are with him will be safe. And so he replies and says, We will not turn aside here. I'm looking in verse 12. Into this city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We will go on to Gibeah. Notice the detail in the end of verse 14. Gibeah belonged to the Benjamites. The Benjamin tribe. Some of his own people. Some of the people of God. And he went to the open square of the city because no one would take him in. Now let me interject here. If you were to rewind and go back to Genesis chapter 19 and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and all the happenings that are there... This, the, the similarities are striking with Judges 19, even down to the vocabulary that is used. The wording is so similar. The writer of Judges and the Spirit of God, knowing that chapter so sticks out in Genesis for the judgment of God coming upon it, makes similarities with it here with one great difference. And what's the difference? In Judges 19, all of that happened amongst the pagans. Excuse me, in Genesis 19. In Judges 19, the very same thing happens among the people of God. The Levite thought he would be safe amongst the people of God. Turned out he could not have been more wrong. And so an old man, notice I told you that this was going to be important, from the mountains of Ephraim. He's from the same place as the Levite, finds himself living among the Benjamites in Gibeon. And he knows something the Levite does not know. And we see that in verse 20 when he says, do not spend the night in the open square. And we want to take that as his saying, oh, come with me. I'm being hospitable to you. He was, that's a fact, but he knew something that this Levite didn't know, he knew he would be in grave danger if he stayed in the open square. So he brought him into his house, gave him fodder to the, gave fodder to the donkeys, and they washed their feet, and they ate and drank. And they were having a grand old time. Perhaps they were reminiscing about what it was like in the mountains of Ephraim, both Both of them being from there, the old man reflecting, this Levite traveling back there. That's where he was on his way. They talked about what they had in common, all of these things. Who knows what the conversation is? The scriptures just say they were enjoying themselves. And then suddenly, certain men of the city, notice the description, perverted men. If you have a notation in your Bible, it will say this literally can be translated the sons of Belial or sons of the devil. 
come knocking on the door. Just as in Genesis 19. The same details play themselves out. I'll paraphrase some of these. They, they want the man delivered outside so that they can go and, the scriptures say, know him carnally. But the old man from the mountains wouldn't allow it. He offers them his own daughter and the concubine. Only don't do such a vile a thing as take this man. Now, honestly, what they did was a vile thing on par. They abused her. And in the end, the next morning, she was dead at the doorstep. You can read the specific details for yourself in verses 22 through 26. But after that horrendous night in verse 27, her master, the Levite, arose, opened the door, and there she was. And he says to her, get up and let us go. And then he realizes that she was dead. So he loads her onto the donkey and takes her home. And then this is where we read in verse 29 what he did with her body and the result of it. And here is the detail we don't need to miss. Notice this in verse 20. That when throughout the territory of Israel, when they received these gruesome packages... <clears throat> It had an effect on them. And this is what they say. No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. So this act that, has been, that had been performed upon this concubine is an illustration of Israel's complete ethical and moral and even spiritual death. This is as bad as it can get. It shakes this people back to reality. And here is a sad fact. Here is a disturbing truth in its own right. Sometimes it takes such gruesome, shocking actions to awaken people to the atrocities of sin that they have been accustomed to living with. Do you follow that? Sometimes something so gruesome and shocking must happen to awaken people to the atrocities of sin that they have become comfortable living with. And again, we can make application of this to our own day. God forgive us for ever becoming comfortable with the fact that babies' lives were ended in what should have been the safest place on earth. That that innocent blood was shed. The same type of thing is happening here. As they received the package, and then heard the details. Notice that this does something that none of the judges could do. 
This causes the people of God, in verse 1 of chapter 20, from Dan to Beersheba, that's just the writer's way of saying the whole of Israel from the north to the south, gathered together as one man before the Lord. None of the judges were able to accomplish this. None of them were able to rally the troops, so to speak, with such great agreement. But this is exactly what this event accomplishes. But before we move on to verse 20, let me make this point of application about the 19th chapter. This event, this chapter, is disturbing commentary on the effects of sin in the heart. Only the lies of Satan, using the fleshly lust found in the heart of man, can produce such gruesomeness. Sin kills, and it doesn't always do so in secret. It's not always in a corner. Sometimes it's right out in the open, so much so that we cannot skirt around it, and we have to deal with its reality. And if you've read chapter 20, you'll note that this event... Because remember, a pagan nation didn't do this. The tribe of Benjamin did this. They were the ones beating on the door. They were the ones killing the concubine. They were the ones who performed all of this. And what happens in chapter 20, based upon the rest of this, is all-out civil war. Something that we don't see in the scriptures. Israel attacking Israel. No longer is the enemy outside the camp. The enemy is in the camp. That's a perfect picture of sin. Sin is residing in your heart. And it would kill you. It would tear you apart. If the grace of God does not intervene, it would totally dismember you. And leave you exactly where it is left This woman. But nonetheless, upon hearing the news and seeing the effects, Israel gathers together as one man. And they, I'm going to summarize and paraphrase a lot of chapter 20. They go and attack Benjamin, one of their own tribes. And this battle is very akin to the battle at Ai because they go out, they attack and are defeated or slaughtered greatly. They come back, cry out to the Lord, go out the next day, the same thing. Thousands upon thousands of their men were killed and slaughtered. And then the third day they go out after seeking the Lord again. And the Lord finally says, this time I have given them into your hands. And amazingly, in chapter 20, verse 18, the Lord is still hearing the prayers of this people. He's still hearing the prayers. They say, they go to the house of God in verse 18. They inquire of God and they say, which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? And we expect crickets, right? Nothing from God. But what does he say? He gives answer. Judah first. The same thing that he said in in chapter 1, if you remember. 
Judah shall go up first. And so they go up again, and even though the Benjamites, you might remember, they had these left-handed warriors. And the detail is great here. They could sling a stone at a hand's breadth and not miss. That means, I think, if they were slinging a stone at you and trying to hit you in the ear, they'd hit your ear. And what an advantage they would have by being left-handed fighters against the defense of that day, which was all geared, the shields and such, to defend from a right-handed attack, not a left-handed. So these were fearsome warriors. But in the end, they're all defeated. The Lord delivers his own people into the hands of another of his own people. And then we get down to the 36th verse. The children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. And the short story is the other tribes lured them away from town, began to burn the city. The smoke column rises. The Benjamites figure out that they had been defeated. Even though they turn and fight, they're all utterly destroyed but just a few. That's important. We'll come back to it. There were only a few Benjamites left. That presents a problem. And here's the height of irony. If you look in chapter 21, verse 6, the children of Israel grieved for Benjamin, their brother. Wait a minute. Weren't they just the ones who... Killed them all? Burned their city? They were. So we move from the Levite and his concubine in chapter 19 to the civil war that rages in verse 20. The thousands upon thousands of Israelite men who lost their lives and the women and the children and the animals who lost their lives. A complete and total utter destruction. And we're reminded again of the effects of sin. The horrible consequence of sin. The wages of sin is death, Paul would say. That's the wage that it pays. And we get over to the 21st chapter. And the 21st chapter is all about the restoration of Benjamin. The people of God who destroyed Benjamin now realize that one of the tribes is very close to being extinct and cut off. And they would lose their identity as the people of God because everything is centered around the 12 tribes. Now, what if there's only 11? And that at their own doing. How guilty would they be before God? And then again, we have the irony and the wisdom of God displayed. He is the one who allowed this attack to happen and even gave his people advantage and victory over the Benjamites. All we can do with this is is bow in submission to God and say, Indeed, Lord God, your ways are not our ways. They are past finding out. We can't understand and fathom it all, but we can understand the degree to which God will go to punish sinful actions. But he'll only go so far on this side of the day of judgment. 
I showed you verse 6 of chapter 21 where the children of Israel grieved for Benjamin. And now they're concerned in verse 7, what shall we do for wives for those who remain? And the reason they're interested about having wives for them is because they want these few men who remain. Notice that little detail. What shall we do for the wives for those who remain? They know if there are no wives, there are no offspring, and this tribe will eventually become extinct. So we would like to think that they have learned some lessons about their own wicked hearts. But yet, if you read chapter 21, there's more brutality, more death. Because what they do basically is they remember... Now, wait a minute. Did everyone gather at Mizpah to go out against Benjamin? No, not everybody. We didn't see any of the men from Jabesh Gilead. So let's go punish them because they didn't come. And the reason that they were going to go punish them is so that they could steal their virgin daughters and give them to the remaining Benjamites. But yet, even those daughters were not enough. If you put the numbers together, apparently there were around 600 remaining Benjamites. And so they also remember this other detail, that there is a yearly feast to the Lord in Shiloh, and there will be some virgin daughters there. So you Benjamites go there, capture these women for yourselves, take them to be your wives, and you will not be extinct. They go to such great lengths because the scriptures tell us in details we haven't read that they had taken an oath that they would not provide wives for the Benjamites from among themselves. So now chapter 21 is nothing but scheming and conniving to get out from under their own oath. It's all backhanded. It's all dishonest. But we read this verse, and I don't want to skip over this detail, because we've compared Genesis 19, Sodom, to Judges 19. In Genesis 19, the destruction of... And fire and brimstone fell upon the Sodomites because of their wickedness. And that destruction was total. It was complete. Here is the mixture of grace in it all. The Benjamites were just as guilty. Their sin before God just as heinous and grotesque. Their sin before him just such an abomination. So the fact that we read in the 7 verse that there were any remaining at all. Is grace. That there was any that Benjamin might have left in their number can only be attributed to the mercy of God. So if you, if you look forward to verse 23, the children of Benjamin took enough wives for their number from those who danced, and this was at the feast of the Lord at Shiloh, whom they caught. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and they rebuilt the cities and dwelt in them. So the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance, and then the summary of the entire book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let me quickly make some applications of our study of this whole book. First, 
Sin always brings the judgment and eventual punishment of God. God said, don't, they did, and then the ensuing calamity. That's the same way it plays out even today. When God says, don't, and you do, calamity is coming. But yet, because we live in the day of salvation, the day of grace, the Lord's judgment is stayed for a while. Don't believe the lie of the devil that says it will never come. It will come. There will be a day of reckoning. We see it all throughout the pages of Judges. But what we've also seen as we've studied this book is that from time to time the people of God engrossed in sin would cry out to him for mercy and what would the Lord do? He would be merciful. Why? Because that's who he is. So if you are entrapped and ensnared in the cords of sin, it's always right to cry out to God for mercy. You don't have to have any basis. You don't have to have any of your goodness to attach to that cry for mercy. All you have to do is bring all of the consequence of your sin to the Lord. And just ask Him for mercy. And He will give it. What we also see in the book of Judges is is that God is completely sovereign. How could you read the book of Judges and not come to that conclusion? At some points it seems like things are spiraling out of control, but then we're reminded... At certain points, this truth is interjected. The Lord said, or the Lord allowed, or the Lord caused, or the Lord did this, or the Lord did that. God is completely sovereign over this mess of the affairs of men. But perhaps the greatest lesson that we gain from the book of Judges in total is that it causes us to longingly and savingly look to Christ, who is the final judge and ultimate deliverer, who fully redeems the people of God. We sang that this morning in one of the hymns we sang, looking for the judge. And when he returns, he will judge in righteousness. I think there are two verses, particularly in the New Testament, that we could take and set over the book of Judges. And these are are lenses by which the book of Judges comes into focus. If we don't have these lenses, we look at the book of Judges and we're confused. We don't know what to make of it. We don't know why God allowed this, why God used that. But when we take these truths, the first being Romans chapter 5, verse 20, and we pull it out and place it over the book and we read, Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Then it begins to make a little sense. Because what we see in the book of Judges is the abundance of sin. 
But yet at the end, what do we see? The abundance of grace. We also can take Paul's words out of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. Take them, set them over the book of Judges, look through them, and the book of Judges makes sense. That verse reads, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. The only reason that Israel was not completely annihilated by the end of the period or era of the judges was because of the faithfulness of God to himself. The promises that he had made, the covenant that he had made that corresponded to his nature. There was nothing in this people. Nothing in this people that merited his grace or mercy at all. Even their times and cries of repentance was masked over with hypocrisy. And temporary at best. So we come away from it. In awe and wonder really. Of the graciousness of our God. The mercy of our God. The unwillingness of our God that any should perish. He is a God of renewing grace. He is a God of a second, third, fourth chance, whatever it needs to be. But all of that comes to an end. When Christ returns, the day of grace is over. I want to read you these words from a hymn Sarah's going to play. I want these words to be in your your mind. You know this old hymn. It reminds us that God is a sin-forgiving God. He only forgives sin on his own terms. You must come to Christ. Listen to the words of this old hymn. Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord. And he will surely give you rest by trusting in his word. Second verse. For Jesus shed his precious blood, rich blessings to bestow. Plunge now into the crimson flood that washes white as snow. And then the third verse. Yes, Jesus is the truth, the way that leads you into rest. Believe in him without delay and you are fully blessed. And then the chorus or refrain of that hymn, only trust him. Only trust him. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you when? Now. Right now. Perhaps you think, well, my sin is red as crimson. Needs to be washed. I'm guilty before a holy God. That's the mercy of God showing you that. Come to Christ. He will receive you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this study of the book of Judges. We realize that 
There is much there that we can't fully comprehend, but we do at least come away from it with this reminder. You are merciful. You are gracious. You cleanse the sin of your people. You purify as with fire. And Lord, I pray that just what we've been reminded of here in this old hymn, that any soul by sin oppressed would come and find mercy in the Lord. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this day. We give you thanks and praise for this very hour and moment, realizing that you have brought us to this point. Lord, use it for your own glory. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.